worship team. That was awesome. Good morning. I'm Shelly Davis. I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I am so happy to be here with you all this spring break week. A shout out to the West Campus also. We're glad the West Campus is joining us also today. You know, last time I was here was a few weeks ago in February, and we talked about Psalm 46, and we had a snowstorm that morning. I don't know whether you remember or not, but we got up, and it was cold, and then we all start driving, and it's a few snowflakes, and then by the time we're all here, it's a blizzard. And so our lecture time was filled with everybody's cell phones going off, telling them that their kids were being dismissed. It was a kind of chaos. So it's much more fun to be here this week on spring break and know that the people that are not here with us this morning are hopefully out enjoying the sunshine somewhere, maybe getting a sunburn instead of slipping and sliding around the streets of Fort Worth. Uh, I'm always amazed by the weather in Texas a few days, a few hours, and it always changes. So, uh, But I'm glad you're here this spring break. How many of you have read the book Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand? Have any of you read that book? It is phenomenal. If you haven't read it, put it on your list of must-reads. It's a true story written about an Olympic runner by the name of Louis Zamperini. It starts out in the late 1930s and goes throughout his life. Uh, Louis Zamperini ends up in a Japanese prison camp after the crash of his B-24 bomber uh, in World War II. But before being captured by the Japanese, he and two crew members float for a record 34 days on a life raft in the Pacific Ocean without food or water. Now, their survival skills managed to keep two of them alive until they're captured by the Japanese. But their intense longing for food during these 34 days that they were slowly starving to death leads them to pass the time in that raft boat, lifeboat in a very interesting way. They pass the time by talking about food. And it recounts that they would think of recipes that they'd grown up with, that their mothers and grandmothers had made for them. And then they would talk in great detail about everything to do with that recipe. And then in an imaginary kitchen, they would prepare it. And when the dish was prepared, then they would sit down to enjoy that dish. And they would talk about every bite as if it was real. This is too spicy. This needs much more salt. In fact, Zamperini recalls that his raft mate, Phil, was so into their food preparation and their feast that if Zamperini even recounted one ingredient wrong, that Phil would make him start over at the very beginning and go back to the first and walk through it step by step. They were so focused on the food that they longed for during those 34 days that it was all that they could think of. They were consumed by it as they were isolated and alone. Now, we're not going to talk about food this morning, but we are going to talk about Psalm 42 and about an encounter with a psalmist who's also isolated and alone, who's also in a desperate circumstance. He's not floating in the Pacific. He's probably hiding in the mountains, um, apparently running for his life. And we're going to eavesdrop on two conversations that he has, one with God and one with himself during this time of, of distress and depression. His soul talk with God 
uh, during this difficult time in his life reveals his honest emotions. He talks about his deepest feelings with God. He pours them out, including what he longs for in his distress. And it's not a gourmet meal. It's not food. During his self-talk or the conversations that he has with himself, we see his faith in God and how he speaks the truth to himself in spite of his depression and distress. So open your Bibles to Psalm 42 if you're not already there. And let's look together at what our psalmist does when his life was difficult. Now the first thing that we see with Psalm 42 is this superscript right there. It says, uh, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. A mascal is a poem or a song of contemplation. And it says it was of the sons of, Kor- of Korah. If you hear a few weeks ago when we did talk about Psalm 46, I told you that there are seven songs Psalms attributed to the sons of Korah uh, in the Psalter. Um, Now, the sons of Korah were distinguished musicians who were appointed by David to serve uh, as worship leaders in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple when it was built by Solomon. What theologians are divided about over the sons of Korah is whether David or others actually wrote the Psalms and gave them to the sons of Korah to perform or whether the sons of Korah wrote them about David's experiences or others' experiences and then performed them. There are great similarities between uh, Psalm 42 and the Psalms of David. So it is possible that David did write this and give it to his musicians to perform. But there's no way for us to truly know the authorship of Psalm 42 beyond of the sons of Korah. It's interesting to note another thing about Psalm 42 is that in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, Psalm 42 and 43 are actually together in the oldest manuscripts. They're both laments. They're both psalms of suffering and grief and sorrow. You may want to take time later to look at Psalm 43 and see how you can tell that it was at one time combined with Psalm 42. But let's uh, begin reading together. Let's read verses 1 through 5. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, theologians believe that this psalm was either written about the time that David was running from Saul, who was trying to kill him, or it was written uh, about the time that David was running from Absalom, who was his son, who was also trying to kill him. Regardless of the circumstances, uh, it's clear that life was very difficult at this moment for whoever wrote Psalm 42 or whoever it was written about. The psalmist begins here with this deep utterance of cry of pure longing for God. Um, When life is difficult, what we see is that the psalmist yearns for his God. He compares his longing here to that of a deer who needs water to sustain its life. 
In the psalmist's day, a deer who was chased through the forest by hunters would eventually, even though he needed, first of all, to escape, he needed to end up at a stream or a pond somewhere where he was going to be able to replenish himself after the chase from the hunters. Its very life would eventually depend upon finding a stream to drink from. And these words by the psalmist are actually such a great simile for our soul's deepest need when despair and depression hunt us down in life also. Now, the Hebrew word for soul here um, literally means a breathing creature. But figuratively, what the psalmist uses to signify is his inner being, the seat of his emotions and appetite and will. And just as a hunted deer has to have water to sustain him, the psalmist tells us that his inner being in this time of being hunted by distress and despair needs God to sustain him also. It's a deer's instinct when chased to run and to find water. It's the psalmist instinct when chased by whatever circumstance he's in to hunt and seek after his God. Now, if this is David actually running from those who want to kill him, it's interesting to see what this great king longs for in his soul, in his darkest moments. This great king does not long for honor or riches. He's not even longing for his big army to come and rescue him from his pursuers. Um, His soul's deepest need even King David's, is for the divine presence of God. Now, anyone who's ever been truly deprived of water, not just thinking, wow, it's hot outside, I need to go in and get a drink, but if you've been truly deprived of water, you know that real biological thirst never lets up. In fact, real biological thirst just builds and builds and builds until the person will do anything to satisfy that thirst. And that's where the psalmist is here. His thirst for God is equally compelling as a true biological thirst. And it's not going to be quenched by anything less than his God. Charles Spurgeon says this about his longing for God's presence. The next best thing to living in light of the Lord's love is to be unhappy until we have it and to pant hourly after it. Thirst is a perpetual appetite and not to be forgotten. And even thus is the heart's longing after God. And that's where our psalmist is here. He has an unquenchable longing for God in his difficult days. In verse 2, he uses the words living God, making the point that what he thirsts for is not religion. He doesn't thirst for an idol. He thirsts for that relationship that he knows he has with the God that he loves. He thirsts for the life-giving fountain of life. Look what Lord Jesus says in John 4 about this living water that David knows he thirsts for. John 4:13 on your verse sheet, Jesus said to her, he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the psalmist longing for God in his distress actually provides for us great direction in our lives 
when we are in that depression or distress or our circumstances are difficult. You know, it's true that sometimes when we're pressed on all sides, when our circumstances are so overwhelming, we become confused and we're in too much pain to know where to turn. Have you ever been in that spot where you just thought, I don't even know where to go. I'm hurting so bad, I cannot think. The psalmist points us in the right direction here uh, to the living water because truly our deepest need in times of distress and despair is not really for our circumstances to change, although that's usually our first choice. Our deepest need is for our God to be near. Look at Psalm 63 on your verse sheet. It says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And here's Psalm 143.6. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. That living water is our soul's deepest desire in our darkest hours. Now, because our psalmist is exiled from the worship that he longs for as he runs for his life, in verse 3, he tells us that the only refreshment he has is from the salt of his own tears. And making matters worse, those that are around him, they're not encouraging him during his hard time. They are taunting him and ridiculing him about his faith. They say to him, well, where is your God now? Why doesn't he show up and help you out? His taunters, he realizes, are quick to ridicule him because they are idol worshipers. They are idol worshipers, and their perception of God was simply a statue or a man-made talisman who was called upon to improve their circumstances, whether it was to make their crops grow or their livestock to multiply or their armies victorious. The people that are taunting him have no understanding of a relationship with a living God that's able to provide this living water that he knows is God's to give him. They mistake the God of Israel for their empty idols, for their empty idols. And our psalmist grieves here because he knows what they hope to do is to shake his confidence in God. What they want to do by their foolish words is to shrink the God of Israel down to the same size of their powerless idols. And that's why they say to him, where is your God? They want him to think that his God is just as powerless as theirs. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced this kind of taunting or ridicule when you're in a difficult position, but if you have, you know that really there's two reactions you can have when people are saying those kind of things to you about your faith. You can believe the lie, you can believe what they're saying, um, that God has forgotten you, or that God's not really big enough to help you, and you can head down your own path of shrinking God down to an idol who simply does what you want him to do. Or you can do what the psalmist does right here. He starts out in verse 4 with these things I remember. When life is difficult and his enemies taunt him, he takes the path of remembrance, the high road of recalling the real and true blessing 
of worshiping with other God followers. And he thinks back on these times, even in the midst of all of this darkness that's swirling around him, he thinks back on those times when he was with other God followers and he was worshiping and he was uh, filled with delight and joy. Now, he's not able to return there at the moment, but he knows uh, in his memories that that exists. And it encourages him just to think about being with other God followers. I have a friend whose mom died recently after a pretty long illness. Um, And this was a normally hard circumstance, but it was made even harder by the fact that the rest of her family, for the most part, was not believers. And as she watched her mom fade um, and really her body be ravished by cancer, uh, the people around her became even more difficult to deal with because they just ridiculed and mocked her faith when she would pray for her mom, they would think it was silly. When she would um, try to encourage her mom with the scriptures, um, they would tell her to put all that stuff away. Fortunately, um, what she chose to do was to take the path of remembrance, even in the midst of her tears. And I know she felt like tears were her food too uh, on some days. In the midst of her tears and in the isolation that she experienced because she was surrounded by this unbelieving family, she chose to take that path of remembrance. And she would call me late at night when she would be home. She would spend the day, uh, the weekends when she wasn't at work with her mom, taking care of her in hospice. And then she would call and she would say, You know, all the way home, all I have done is just thank God that he called me out of an unbelieving family and gave me my salvation. That he's given me so many gracious and good believing friends that are my encouragement now. That um, he's given me the word of God. I was at her house yesterday and all over her house she had scripture cards with verses pasted Uh, on the walls in her bathroom mirror and our refrigerator there was even I opened the refrigerator door and there was even one inside the refrigerator and she said well that's where I am most in the refrigerator I may as well put the word of God there but she chose to remember not the ridicule and the taunting she chose not to shrink her God down to a worthless idol instead she remembered who he was and it made a difference in our life and we can do the same thing when we're in a hard time and others smirk at our faith we can remember the blessings of our faith just like the psalmist does and be encouraged now in verse 5 the psalmist switches gears he's been in these first four verses he's been having this intimate real transparent soul talk with god he has been conversing with god but now he decides to converse with himself psalmist to psalmist if this is david it's david talking to david And he asked himself a rhetorical and pretty honest question about his own despair. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And then he does an amazing thing, something I think is is so um, indicative of his relationship with God and probably his spiritual maturity. In light of his depression and despair, he encourages himself with the truth about God here. There's nobody else around to do it. He's surrounded by enemies who are bent on discouraging him. He's separated from his fellow worshipers, and he even feels like God is so distant and far from him. We've all been in those places, haven't we, when we felt like even God 
had turned away from us. Um, so in the middle of all this, in the middle of his tears and his pain, he listens to his heart. He listens to his heart, and he tells himself the truth. And very forcefully, in verse 5, he says to himself, Hope in God. Hope in God. He's able to speak the truth about who God is because he knows God's character. He knows the love of God, even though this darkness is swirling around him when he really stops and looks in his heart of heart. He knows that his hope in God is well-placed. Despite his circumstances, despite his longing for the face of God, he knows that God is his everlasting hope. And that's what he tells himself. That's what he tells himself. He agrees with what the author of Lamentations says. I think this is exactly what he's thinking here. Look at Lamentations 3.21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I will hope in him. This is the self-talk that the psalmist is having with himself. What he does is he stops the lies of the enemies. And isn't it amazing that the lies of people around us are oftentimes more powerful than the truth that we have written in this word right here. And it swirls around and around and around in our head. But he stops. And he listens to the truth that he knows is in his heart. He tells himself who God is. God is his hope. And what God is. God is his salvation. You know, there's probably going to come a day in all of our lives. It may have already come in your life. But it may come in the future. When we are isolated and alone and grieving. And possibly feeling that God has even turned his face from us. And those who surround us simply want to add to our misery like our friend and her family. When that day comes, I want you to remember this psalm. When that day comes, and it will, remember this psalm and what the psalmist does because self-talk that's filled with the truth is going to be what gives us hope. Despite his deep depression, what our psalmist does is use his own faith to encourage himself to greater faith. He uses his own faith to encourage himself to even greater faith. You know, no matter how great our despair is or how difficult our circumstances, the one thing that we can always choose to do that no one can stop us from doing is to tell ourselves the truth. Tell ourselves the truth. So let's keep on with our psalmist. Let's look at verses 6 through 11. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, 
for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now we've just seen our psalmist in verse 5 right here stop in the middle of his soul talk and do this amazing self-talk to still his lament and to encourage his own soul. But just like often happens, what happens here? He falls right back into despair. At least that's how he recounts it here to us. Um, He's not done with his soul talk before the Lord. He still has more things that he really wants to pour out. You know, in verse 1, we saw him really cry outwardly to God. And here in verse 6, it looks like his... um, despair and depression have really turned inward where um, he says my soul is cast down within me he's drawn into himself here like a wilting flower with no water he also tells us here in verse 6 a little bit about where he is he's far from Jerusalem he's far from the sanctuary where he has normally worshipped God and been encouraged by fellow God followers. He was apparently near a mountain range that is north of the Sea of Galilee at the headwaters to the Jordan River. So he is a significant uh, distance away from Jerusalem where he normally worships. In verse 7, he gives us a, a, a word picture of the power and depth of his depression with the imagery of waves and breakers just washing over him. If you've ever had the experience of a real clinical depression or you've had a relative or a close friend that has experienced a true clinical depression, not just a day when you were blue or you thought, oh, life is gray and doesn't look Right, but days on end of being immobilized by despair. You know how accurate this picture is right here because it does. It just washes over you with power and it seems uncontrollable, just like the waves of the sea seem uncontrollable. Last January, I had the fun opportunity of going to uh, San Juan with my husband Billy for a destination a friend's destination wedding and it it's a beautiful place for a destination wedding if you're in the market for one consider San Juan and we stayed at a hotel on the beach and the water was this amazing Caribbean blue but the surf on that beach was the most powerful I've ever experienced even in this much water it would just knock your feet out from under you and try to drag you out to the sea needless to say I spent my time in a chair on the beach instead of out in that powerful um, surf but uh, one day sitting on the beach in fact Lynn was sitting there with me not very far from the shore this young muscled 20 year old guy had to be rescued and pulled out just a few feet from the shore because the surf was so powerful he couldn't swim against it and that's what the psalmist is telling us here about his despair and depression it's so powerful that he's unable to stand up against it just like the waves of the sea that keep breaking over him and dragging him down But in verse 8, in the middle of describing the depth of his despair, um, he starts talking about God's faithfulness to him, which is so um, delightful to me that he stops. And he talks about um, his belief that God would be faithful by commanding his steadfast love by day. And as God, in the midst of his despair... 
commands his steadfast love, that gives our psalmist, in the midst of his despair, the power to praise and pray to his God all night long. Now, he uses the word God commands his steadfast love here. And in the Hebrew, the psalmist, uh, the word the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, the word the psalmist uses for command means to give charge to, to order, to ordain. It's a very strong word. It's actually the same word that we saw the psalmist use in Psalm 33 last week when Deb was talking to us. Look at Psalm 33 on your verse sheet. It says, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. What he's telling us here, the psalmist is telling us, is he understands that even though his depression and despair is powerful and seems uncontrollable, God's power is even more complete. When he commands it, it comes to be because he is the commander of the armies of heaven. There is not a despair or a depression that can stand up to the commands of God. Our psalmist knows that even in the midst of his deep depression, which is why I think he puts verse 8 right here in the middle of it, um, that God has the power to break through that despair with his steadfast love. And our psalmist responds to that steadfast love by praising the God of his life all night long. Just like the lifeboat that kept Louis Zamperini and his two crew members alive uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with no food and no water. And in um, the book, he describes how the sharks circled that lifeboat day and night. Um, There was even a description of one time where they would try to jump in the boat and bite them. And they had a paddle and they would take turns batting the sharks out of the lifeboat with them. Um, Just like that lifeboat that kept them alive and afloat, God's steadfast love is our lifeline and our lifeboat in the midst of despair and depression. It keeps us afloat when depression would devour us and despair would sink us. Look at Psalm 31.7 on your verse sheet. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And Romans 8, some of my favorite verses in all the scriptures, remind us who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our psalmist may be feeling out of control with his depression and despair, but one thing he's not doing is he is not going to get out of the lifeboat that is God's steadfast love. And he tells us that right here in the middle of these last few verses. Now, I love verse 9 because he starts out with, I say to God my rock, and that word rock uh, is a word that figuratively means, literally means fortress or stronghold in the Hebrew. And then he starts, after, after calling God his rock and his stronghold, he starts with his why questions here. Um, 
the same why questions that we all have when life makes an unexpected turn. Somebody in the leaders group, Penny Casman was talking in the leaders group this morning about her two-year-old uh, grandchild that he, she had yesterday and everything she wanted him to do, they said, why? 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 That's kind of like we are with God when our life takes an unexpected turn. You know, my husband Billy and I have known each other since the seventh grade. And I hate to even think about it, but that was 50 years ago that we first met. And, and in the last 50 years, he and I have driven countless miles together. And him driving and generally me riding. And, and it's the uh, most interesting thing when we get in the car to go somewhere we never agree um, on the route to take if if I say if I say oh yeah we're going you know blah blah just take the freeway he looks at me and says the freeway not at this time of day it'll be too crowded we're going the back road and if we get in the car and I say don't take the freeway it'll be too crowded he says um uh, no, we're taking the freeway. It'll totally be fine. And unfortunately, I hate to admit it, but even after 50 years, I still want to say, why? Why do you think that is the best way to go? Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I just want, obviously, I think, my choice is better. I have reasons to think this is the best route to take, and I really like to be in control. I really like to be in control, which is why he doesn't let me drive, probably. Um, the psalmist and I have a lot in common. He wants to know why also. Why has my life taken this route? And he openly asks God his question. He asks his rock and his fortress and his God that he longs for, why have you allowed me to take this road? Didn't you know there was going to be suffering and um, uh, misery on this road? In verse 9, he says to God, why uh, am I exposed to my enemies? And in verse 10, he one more time says to God, um, don't you know they're taunting me? Don't you know that they're still saying to me, where is your God? Um, you know, the why question, and we could spend the entire rest of the semester talking about um, the why question and, and why bad things happen to good people. But really, the why question for the psalmist and all of us comes from the tension that happens when our faith runs headlong into our circumstances. When our faith runs headlong into our circumstances because we want to trust God, but we want to control our circumstances. And if we trust God, then our circumstances might be under his control. And when they don't look like the turn we think they should, we want to know why. Because if we control them, we would understand why. But, you know, really the answer to the why question ultimately centers around the who. Ultimately, it centers around the who. Like I said, we could talk for weeks about the why, but the answer we're going to come to at the end of the day is who. If we know who journeys with us when life takes an unexpected turn, then we are going to have to trust him with the road that we take. Our psalmist doesn't record any answers to his why questions, which I think is pretty interesting here. But what he does record is the who. Even though he asks why, 
He's really resting in the who. Look at verse 1. It's the who that he longs for. Um, In verse 5, it's the who that he calls his hope and his salvation. Uh, In verse 8, he talks about the steadfast love of God, which is who. And even in verse 9, when he's asking why he's talking, he addresses the who, the rock. If our faith allows us to question God, and it does, because God already knows what's in our hearts and in our minds, so we may as well be honest with him and honest with ourselves and express it to him. If our faith allows us to question God, then it's through our faith that we are going to rest in the who when life takes a different turn. Look at Isaiah 43.2 on your verse sheet. It talks about the who. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And Exodus 15 talks about the who. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you redeemed. You have guided them by your strength. It's all about the who. It's really not about the why. You know, Billy is, uh, after 50 years, pretty patient with me uh, when I look at him and say, why are we taking this way? But more than him being patient with me is after 50 years, for me to come to the realization that um, it doesn't matter which way we go, we always end up where we're supposed to be. It's not why we traveled this road. It's who we traveled it with. Now, our psalmist ends his soul talk. He's had this great soul talk in these last four verses, but he ends with some more self-talk. It's the psalmist talking to the psalmist again in verse 11. David talking to David, if this is David. Um, So we see that in this psalm, he's first been outwardly despairing. Then he's been inwardly despairing. Um, But now he turns one more time to the truth, even um, as that despair has made his soul wilt a little bit. He forcefully tells himself at the end of this psalm one more time to hope in God um, because he knows that God is his only hope. He knows that God is his salvation. And because of those things, he realizes that praise for God will one day be on his lips again. Um, He doesn't give up on the truth. And because he doesn't give up on the truth... um, He lets himself anticipate the victory that's going to come. And, you know, that's such a great gift to us when we finally come to the point where we realize today is not where I want to stay. But when I look honestly at the truth of who God is, I can anticipate that day to come. And I don't know when that day will come, but I can be confident that that day will come. So our psalmist does not give up on the truth, and he anticipates the victory that God would bring over all his circumstances, and he allows the truth to lift up his head. He lets the truth under his chin lift up his head, and when he lifts up his head from his pain and his circumstances and his difficult life, what happens is that he looks straight into the face of God. He looks straight into the face of God. And what he sees there is all the hope that he needs for the future. Look at Psalm 121 with me. 
I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And Psalm 3.3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. When we let the truth help us anticipate the victory that God has in store for us, then it lifts our head and we see the hope that comes from looking straight into the face of God. Pray with me. Father, you are gracious and good. We know the truth of who you are just like the psalmist is. Lord, I'm asking that you would encourage us today from Psalm 42, that you would let us um, soak deep into our souls the words that the psalmist speaks here. And we too would be able to lift up our eyes from the pain that um, is around us today. And we would be able to see your face and know that the victory is yours. Lord, I thank you for for these women, their love for the word, their love for each other, and all that they have gone through to be here today. I ask that your hand of favor and blessing would be on them. Um, And I pray that we would truly be women who the word of God is important to. And I pray this in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.